This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, October 5th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. When Nancy Pelosi said of the Affordable Care Act, we have to pass it to find out what's in it, she may have been referring to how the law would be interpreted and the thousands of pages of regulations that had yet to be written. Josh Blackman is author of the new book, Unraveled, Obamacare, Religious Liberty, and Executive Power. We spoke last month about how the law has been interpreted and applied. The Affordable Care Act represented uh, not just a, a, a big transformation, a big expansion of government involvement in the healthcare sector, but like a lot of legislation, it left so many of the details to be sorted out by executive agencies. And it almost seemed as if uh, President Obama and those executive agencies were treating his law like it was his law, and and that, well, I get to decide what this means and what that means uh, by having all this power delegated back to the executive branch by the legislature. That's exactly right. The ACA was a 3,000-page bill that no one read. And then Speaker Pelosi famously said, we have to pass the bill to find out what's in it. And she wasn't being facetious. Like It wasn't that this bill would magically sprout out new words after it was enacted. It's that the law delegated vast amounts of authority to various agencies to make decisions affecting health care in all aspects of our life. To give you a few examples, the so-called contraceptive mandate that requires employers to cover contraceptives was not in the ACA. All the ACA said is that uh, employers must provide for women, quote, preventive care. Uh, 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 the, the agencies have also taken it upon themselves to delay various mandates, create exemptions, create waivers that were never in the consideration of Congress. So the law we have now, which I call Obamacare, is indeed Obama's law. It, it is. This bears less and less relationship to the debates that Congress held in 2009 and 2010. So to what extent in uh, the next administration, uh, this would be the Affordable Care Act, either Trump's Affordable Care Act or Clinton's Affordable Care Act. So we have what, Donald Care or Hillary Care. Um, I don't think it will make much of a difference who the president is for a simple fact. So long as there's a filibuster in place, Republicans will not support a modification of Obamacare for the Democrats, and the Democrats will not support a repeal of Obamacare. So we're more or less left with this um, this calcified uh, 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 mummy, right? It looks like the Obamacare on the outside, but the inside it's hollow, and it doesn't have all the internal workings that was designed. And this is, in many respects, the unraveling of the ACA. Um, it's still called the ACA. You can still log on to healthcare.gov to buy insurance, and you still have the same sorts of subsidies and mandates available, but it's not operating as the central planners had intended it to. I guess my real question is, to what extent are these, this future president, whoever that is, still going to be able to pull significant levers in terms of how the law gets applied or how it uh, actually functions? So I think what we'll see in a Clinton presidency is uh, a sustained push to add a public option to the law. Both Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton have said they will do this. And a public option is not much of a mystery. My friend Seth Chandler, who teaches at the University of Houston, has said a public option is like a Trojan horse with windows, right? We all know what's coming. Once you have the government competing with private insurers, the private insurers lose because you can't underprice the government. Um, If Hillary manages to push through some sort of a public option, um, that is, basically the end of uh, the health care exchanges. We know it because it will simply be an expansion of Medicare uh, uh, for all that people can pay into. In the event that we have a Trump presidency, 
Um, we have no idea what the heck to expect. Until fairly recently, Trump supported single-payer health care. He supported national health care systems. He still wants to cover everyone because he has a heart. Um, so I think his promises to repeal Obamacare are illusory. But in the event that President Trump does what perhaps President Romney would have done, he can inflict severe damage to the ACA. And the way this is accomplished is through a waiver process. HHS can sign off on a series of waivers to the states to engage in experimentation. So say if Texas, where I live, wants to perhaps maybe change the mandates and run things differently, uh, HHS could, in theory, allow Texas to do that. That would give a lot more flexibility for state law exchanges. Um, so that could be a serious way to undercut the law. But as it stands at a national level, until you get to the 60-vote block, the bill is going to stay as it is. So waivers as one method, and you said that repeal is unlikely. Um, what are you hearing about sort of market-based reforms that would hopefully do two things? One, undermine the impact of this law on insurance markets, and two, actually extend that uh, the kind of coverage that everybody wants people to have? The single biggest problem with health insurance is that it's tied to your employer. And it's a form of compensated care. In other words, instead of giving you a higher salary, you give a lower salary with health care uh, insurance paid for part of it that's tax-free. Um, the fact of the matter is we need to get people off their employer-provided plans. This is an awful, awful idea. And the blame lies at unions. Unions basically pay their employees through benefits rather than cash. And they do everything in their power to keep people on this. But Caleb, that would require a massive sacrifice where not maybe four or five million people lose their plans, like 140 million people who have employer-provided health insurance would lose it. That would be a serious sacrifice that I don't think any politician is willing to take. So short of that, you can have things like health savings accounts and other types of uh, weakening the mandates, like giving people more choice of what plans to buy. But the basics of Obamacare, that people cannot be denied coverage or pre-existing conditions, and that you can buy health insurance in a plan, that's not going anywhere. The only thing we can tweak at the margins is what kind of plans are available and what are the level of subsidies. That's probably the most meaningful change that could happen. The Supreme Court is operating with eight members. Um, Randy Barnett was, I think, initially very uh, confused by a lot of the response about uh, the first Obamacare case. Uh, and he said, well, it's 19 out of 20. That's pretty good, right? But um, what do you see as the future of this law going before the court? So in the King v. Burwell decision, which was decided in 2015, the Chief Justice basically said, no more. We don't want any more Obamacare cases. And what the chief said was, the purpose of this law is to improve health insurance, not destroy it. And we will read the law with that purpose in mind. Once you start from the presumption that the law is meant to expand health insurance, any challenge to it fails. If the government's paying illegal subsidies, who cares? It's helping people get insurance. If the government's giving money to insurance companies, who cares? It's helping people get insurance. This simple premise that we have to read the ACA as protecting health insurance, um, I think, was a signal from the court that they are not going to be involved in policing the boundaries of the ACA, and it will fall largely to the political process, but more likely to the law itself. Can this law stand on its own two feet? And I think three years into it, we're already seeing an unraveling, if I may use the title of my book, of the entire law. What does that premise, or presenting that premise, what does that say about somebody's judicial philosophy? Because you, you say, if, if this is the premise that we're going to import into this law, as you noted during your talk, that you know that kind of idea hasn't prevented uh, Justice Roberts from reading other laws differently. I've long since tried 
uh, I've long since stopped psychoanalyzing John Roberts. Um, he's willing to invalidate key portions of the Voting Rights Act. He's willing to invalidate key portions of campaign finance reform. And he's willing to vote in the same-sex marriage case to uh, uphold these various laws. Um, he has a willingness to go against whatever the liberal intelligentsia of the day says is the right decision. But for whatever reason, he's viewed Obamacare as a sort of sacred cow that only democracy can change. And Justice Scalia, in what would be his final dissent delivered from the bench, said that we should stop calling it Obamacare. <laughs> we should stop calling it the ACA and start calling it SCOTUS Care, because this law is largely a, a, a creation of the Supreme Court at this point. The Chief Justice, on several occasions, has rewritten the law to change it in a way to make it function that its drafters would have never recognized. And I think this speaks to a philosophy of confusion. Uh, people say he might be a minimalist. I think he's out of his league. He does not know what he's doing. And if he thinks he does, he's not nearly as smart as he pretends to be. Josh Blackman is author of Unraveled, Obamacare, Religious Liberty, and Executive Power. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.